The American pygmy shrew is an interesting little animal. At just two inches long, it reaches adulthood in about 18 days. That's good because the lifespan is less than a year and a half. That time is spent in a constant search for food. You see, the pygmy shrew's heart beats 1,000 times a minute. It breathes 800 times a minute. And its metabolism is so high, it has to eat three times its weight every single day. And that means that these shrews can never sleep for more than a few minutes at a time because even an hour without food could mean certain death. Now, that kind of existence uh, seems futile to us, right? We wouldn't choose that sort of life for ourselves. Luckily, we don't have to devote our entire focus to finding food. Instead, we see life set before us, the wheel in our hand, and we are free to choose which horizon we're going to press toward. But that freedom that we have doesn't guarantee we're going to arrive at the destination of a meaningful life. God has gone to great lengths to warn us that there are many paths that will end in a ruined life, a wasted life, one with as little ultimate eternal meaning as a pygmy shrew, a worthless life. Now that may sound harsh, but it's the truth. God says this in 2 Kings 17, describing some people who went the wrong way in life. He says, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Now, mankind in many places in today's day and age has moved away from bowing before golden idols in the traditional pagan sense. But there is, of course, still a draw on our hearts for us to give ourselves over to other masters that aren't our creator. So much of human attention is devoted to gathering and managing wealth, for example. Our culture is engrossed with money and richness and material gain. We want to know who has it. And so outlets like Forbes will tell us each year who has the biggest pile. Isn't that a strange thing that, you know, that there's a magazine who once a year just devotes its issue to telling you who has the biggest pile of wealth? It's, a, it's strange. Uh, people talk about who should have it. And so we have movements like Occupy Wall Street back in 2011 or other groups who rail against the, those they label the 1%. Economists and universities research pay gaps in our civic leaders debate minimum wage levels. When it comes to the voters, every election cycle, many people cite economic issues as important, extremely important, or the most important consideration in choosing who they want to represent them in the halls of government. They say, hey, you're going to cast a vote for who's going to represent you in the government, and what's the most important thing you're thinking about? A lot of people every time say economic issues. It's not all theoretical or political. It seems that even before the COVID crisis, more and more people in America were becoming less likely to show generosity. In the year 2000, for example, two-thirds of Americans donated to charity. In 2014, that number has slid down to 55%. Our popular culture, at the meantime, embraces the pursuit of wealth for individuals. We concern ourselves with who's the highest paid actor or the best-selling musician. And your social media feed is full of ads promising you a method by which you can make thousands of dollars by working from home doing no work. By the way, don't click on that link. Let me just throw that out there for you. If you're perusing Facebook and it says, I made $7,000 yesterday working at home, uh, they're going to steal your money. They're not going to give you anything. Our culture's approach to wealth is like the pygmy shrew's approach to food. And it's sort of crystallized by that title of Curtis 50 Cent Jackson's debut album and then his first feature film, Get Rich or Die Trying. Don't worry, this isn't a passage about giving. This is a 
text about living, living a life of real meaning and value in a world that is absolutely fixated on all the wrong things. It's also an encouragement to us in a time when many people are feeling a pinch in their wallet and the potential anxiety that follows when days are looking lean ahead. We are reminded by God's word that if we make the focus of our lives and the pursuit of our lives about material things and material pursuits, we may lay hold of some sort of uh, tenuous peace of mind for a few moments. We may even lay hold of some pile of treasure in the here and now. But in the end, if we allow our purpose to get rich, then we're going to die trying. Psalm 49 is a song that drives home not only the proper mindset God wants us to have, but also it reveals what great value he has placed on that human treasure he bought with the blood of his son. And so we're going to begin right above verse 1 in the superscript, and we read there, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who inhabit the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. You know, in the book of Psalms, there are some Psalms directed to Jews, some to pilgrims, some to kings as the original audience. Every Psalm has application for us and benefit for us. We can take comfort in each and every one of them. But as an original audience, some of these Psalms are directed to particular groups. But this Psalm is for everyone everywhere, right from the beginning, all who inhabit the world. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. If you are alive, God is singing this song to you. And that's an important point. Because as we read about this, it's going to be easy for most of us to think, well, I'm already a Christian, or I'm not rich, at least by my own definition. And so what follows applies to the next person over. And it doesn't apply to me. But the song specifically, from the start, lumps all of us together. It says, hey, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you have, what you don't have. We all need to listen in to what comes next. And this is also a great message concerning current cultural opinions today. Today, there's a general idea that there are different rules for different people. On the one hand, the average man on the city street will probably say that the quote-unquote rich should be taxed at a much higher rate than the quote-unquote poor, right? That's just kind of an opinion that's out there when they do these man-on-the-street interviews, that there should be different rules. On the other hand, it is evident that there are in some ways a different set of rules for people who have great wealth <clears throat> or great prominence in our society than the average Joe. We see some of the escapades and exploits of uh, famous people and the sorts of things that they do and sorts of laws that they break and they get a very stern, now don't you do that again. And the rest of us are thinking, you know, if I went out and did that, uh, they'd lock me up and throw away the key. But that's not how God works. His truth does not apply to one group or the other. It applies to everyone. And as his creatures... We are commanded to listen to what he says. You know, God is a God of incredible patience and grace and understanding and tenderness. But God has spoken. He has said some things. He said a lot of things. He has issued commands and instructions and decrees and guidance. And it is not only our duty to hear him, it's also our only hope. He doesn't issue these proclamations and these decrees and these commands and these instructions just for his own benefit. It's for our benefit, not because things might be a little bit better if we go his way, but because it's our only hope to live a meaningful life that ends in life everlasting. Verse three says, my mouth speaks wisdom. My heart's meditation brings understanding. 
I turn my ear to a proverb. I explain my riddle with a liar. The psalmist here is able to deliver this song to us because he listened to what the Lord had to say. It's not his idea, it's God's idea. And putting it to music, he's now hoping we will all hear and learn the tune and sing along with him. This is what, you know, Bible commentators call a wisdom psalm as they categorize the different types of psalms. That just emphasizes the fact that God's word is full of wisdom, real, actual, applicable wisdom. It's not just the good book, it's a guidebook. It's not just a set of stories, it's the scout which looks through the past, looks far to the future, looks into your heart and makes sense of all of that, gives insight to all of that, explanation and guidance and everything that we need for life and godliness, showing you the roads to take, the dangers to avoid, how to lay hold of everlasting life. God's word meets the hardest questions of life with real applicable answers and shows how you can be known by the most important person of all time. We need to really drink deep of God's word. Sadly, fewer and fewer people are going to the word of God to drink of its truth. In its 10th annual State of the Bible survey, the American Bible Society found that fewer than one in 10 people use the Bible daily. CEO Robert Briggs said this, despite nearly every individual in the United States having access to the Bible, engagement has decreased. That's been a consistent trend over the past few years, and the trend has accelerated since January 2020 through the pandemic. It's not a good thing. Now, that's not meant to burden you or tell you, okay, you have to read a hundred chapters of the Bible every single day, or otherwise God's mad at you. That's not what's being said at all. This is an appeal. Here is help. Here is guidance. Here is perspective and insight. Here is truth in the midst of the world's chaos. You want to know what was going on in history? You want to know what's going to happen in the future? You want to know what's going on deep in your heart of hearts in places that even you can't understand? All of the answers to those things are to be found in God's word, his living word, as we sit and listen. Verse 5 says, Why should I fear in times of trouble? The iniquity of my foes surrounds me. The singer here is in on a secret, and he wants you and I to be a part of it. The times were tough, to be sure, and the people in power are described as nipping at his heels, coming after him. But he's not worried. He's calm and resolute and sure of what is true. This is a good opportunity for all of us to remind ourselves that there is nothing too difficult for our God to accomplish. I don't know what you're facing in your life, what kind of difficulty. Some of you walk through the doors today with immense, uh, strenuous difficulties that seem to have no answer. Some of you walk through the door today with lifelong illnesses, maybe terminal illnesses. Some of you are going to be facing foes that you don't even know about yet. And we're not making light of any of those things, but we're going to take the opportunity as we're gathering here today to remind ourselves that there is nothing too difficult for our God to accomplish. Who's our God? This is the God who defeats all enemies. But not only does he defeat all enemies, he does something even more remarkable than that. This is the God that can bring revival to the city of Nineveh. And if you think that there's, you know, the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, look back into the testimony of Scripture. Look at a city like Nineveh. If you have a stomach for it, do a little research of the kinds of things that Nineveh did to people for sport and for pleasure. And God could bring revival to that city with the simple preaching of the gospel from one man and by the power of his spirit. This is the God who can bring the King Nebuchadnezzar, the most wicked yet most powerful man in the entire world, and bring him to repentance. 
This is the kind of man that can take a, a man like Saul of Tarsus who made it his life's goal to kill Christians and to ravage the church. And he says, you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to reach out to you with love and kindness, draw you to myself and turn you into an apostle. This is the God who can stop the sun in the sky if he needs to. No day is too dark for him to break through with his light. No trouble in your life is too much for him to address. That's who our God is. Verse 6 says, They trust in their wealth and boast in their abundant riches, yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God since the price of redeeming him is too costly. One should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. Verse 8 is a parenthesis here. It helps to sort of just read verse 7 right into verse 9 and then go back to verse 8 to understand the flow of thought. But the difference on display in this psalm is between those who trust in God for their lives and their well-beings and their future and those who trust in wealth, in material things. And listen, this isn't just about people who worship money. In our minds, we all either know people in our real lives or in the world today or in history, people who worship money, right? Who will give up anything to get a little more in their pile. They'll give up their family. They'll give up their health. They'll give up all sorts of things if they can just increase their wealth. And those are sad stories. But this psalm is not just about those who worship money and those who follow God. We're also talking about those who just hang their lives on material things. The, the mindset that we would call that is, hey, my paycheck will protect, protect me. If I just get that paycheck, if I just get that refund, if I just get that extra little pile of money, that little sack of coin, then we will be okay. But for human beings, there's so much more going on than the monthly bills that come in the mail. It's hard to remind ourselves of that, but we need to. There's a life after this one. And standing before God, mankind owes an unpayable fine. You see, after this life ends, every single one of us is going to stand before the king of heaven and earth. And there's a problem because each and every one of us owes an unpayable fine. I don't know what the largest fine you've ever gotten was, whether it was a speeding ticket or something like that. But we stand before the court of heaven and the fine is so large and so great. I mean, there is no hope at all that anyone could dig deep enough into their pockets to pay it. Here on earth, a person might have enough assets to be comfortable and secure, meet all their needs, pay all their fines. But that at the end of life, we each owe a ransom debt to God. And there is no amount of money that can clear that debt. The price is far too high. I love that there in verse 8. The price of redeeming him is too costly. It's too high. Sometimes it makes the news when uh, these items sell at auction for an insane amount of money. In 2017, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvador Mundi, a little painting, you know, about this big, it sold at auction for $450 million. If you haven't seen it, it's Jesus, European Jesus, and he's holding, he's holding a crystal orb for some reason. So I guess he's like the fortune-telling Jesus. I'm not quite sure. $450 million. But if you think that's a bunch of money, oh, I've got something else for you. The most expensive item ever to be sold, they say, was a yacht called the History Supreme. It was made with 220,000 pounds of 24-karat gold. One of the walls in the master bedroom was constructed with meteoric stone. And it contains a sculpture made from an actual T-Rex bone. Who okayed that transaction? I don't know. It sold for $4.8 billion to a gentleman in Malaysia. Now, that's insane and silly. And we think, I don't even know what a billion dollar is, let alone $4.8 billion dollars. 
But pick any human life, any human life, and from the human measurement, let's pick the most worthless human life in caricature, the most wasted life imaginable from the worst place in the worst time. And the Lord says, yeah, I look at that life and it is worth so much more than anything that has ever been sold on the, in the history of the world. It is worth so much more than the GDP of the wealthiest nation of all time. It's worth so much more. It can't be calculated. It can't be tabulated. It's a priceless thing. But not only is our value that high in the eyes of God, there's a problem because our debt is also that high. You know, they say that Jeff Bezos' wealth grows by $2,000 a second. But you know, before God standing before the king of the universe, he's a pauper, powerless to pay for his sin. It's a real problem. We can't buy our way out of death. God can't be bribed. He can't be paid off. And this is important too. We can't work our way out of death either. We need someone to rescue us by paying the ransom. Look at the language used by the psalmist here. He's talking about rescue. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about ransom. And we need that ransom paid now because we all know that death is real. It is sure. And it is waiting to claim every single person. And it's a surprise party for just about all of us. We don't know if it's coming today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, but it is coming. And because we don't know when it's coming, we need that ransom paid right now. It's estimated that every minute, 120 people die around the globe. And the Bible explains that after death in this life comes judgment. No second chance, no do-over, no it's a wonderful life where, you know, you get to relive things, Groundhog Day, pick your, pick your movie. No purgatory to work off your debts. That's not a biblical teaching. No, the book of Hebrews says you die and then that's it. After death comes judgment. And so before we continue, the question is this. Are you listening here right now? Are you ready to die? Remember, with all of these thoughts on his mind, this psalmist said, I am not afraid. I'm not afraid to die. How can that be? It's because his ransom had been paid. He knew the Redeemer. Do you? Do you know the Redeemer today? Is he your Redeemer? Have you fallen before the cross and said, Lord Jesus, I, I'm guilty of sin. I need you to take away the guilt of my sin. Cover me and wash me in your blood so that I might be made white as snow. If you think you're going to be able to stand before the Creator and make it through the pearly gates because you were a good person or because you worked hard in life to provide for your family or whatever other, you know, sort of trite things that we say sometimes. If you think, well, I'll make it through because I'm not as bad as Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler or anybody else that we want to pick. Listen to what's being said here. All the effort of your life isn't worth half a cent on a trillion dollar invoice. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant and maybe you didn't pay quite attention to what you were ordering or whatever, and the bill comes and you're like, wait, what did we eat? That happens to me. We don't go out a lot, but every time we go out for breakfast, right? Because I think breakfast should cost like 13, 14 cents when you're all for the whole family, right? You go out and you're like, well, what kind of egg? Was this like golden eggs? What kind of eggs am I eating here? And you're like looking at it and you're thinking, what? Imagine you had your meal and they brought the little folio over and you open it up and the bill was $1 trillion and that they were serious. You owe 
a trillion dollars. Make it two trillion. And then you dig into your pocket and you say, well, I have a nickel. That comes in some drop of a way close to what will happen when we stand before God in the guilt of our sin. Where God looks down and says, you're guilty. You're guilty of all the law. You're guilty of all the sin that you've lived. All of your imperfection, all of your failure. You're guilty. And there's a price that has to be paid because the wages of sin is death. That's the law. Oh, I have a nickel to pay. I was a good person. I only cheated people sometimes. I was only selfish 99% of the day. We can't pay that debt. There's a comical moment in the film, Catch Me If You Can. Young Frank Abagnale has been forging checks and is being chased by the FBI. His parents don't really know what's going on, and Frank's mom is questioned by FBI agents one day, and she, not understanding the gravity of the situation, grabs her checkbook and says, I've been working part-time at the church. Tell me how much he owes, and I'll pay you back. The response, $1.3 million. And she just stands there in stunned silence while Tom Hanks walks out the door. Whatever direction we're sailing in life, here's what we know. We know that each and every one of us are imperfect. That's a problem when you stand before a perfect God who demands perfect holiness. You can't get to heaven if you're imperfect because heaven is perfect. And if you were there in imperfection, heaven would no longer be perfect. And we also know that all of us are on a crash course with death. The psalmist drives the point home in verse 10. For one can see that the wise die, the foolish and stupid also pass away. Then they leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their permanent homes, their dwellings from generation to generation, though they have named estates after themselves. But despite his assets, mankind will not last. He is like the animals that perish. This is the way of those who are arrogant and of their followers who approve of their words. Evolutionists suggest we're just animals, just like all the others. In a cosmic sense, we're not special, they say, just more evolved. That's not what verse 12 means. You know, when it says there we're just like the animals, it simply means that we, like all other animals, are mortal. In fact, by highlighting this similarity, the truth that we are much more than just animals is being affirmed. You're not just another animal. You are a special creation created by God in the image of God, of infinitely more value than any other animal. The birds and the fish and the monkeys were not created in the image of God. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Now, when we started this song, we were promised wisdom and answers. We were being serenaded by someone who was living without fear or worry. And then since then, what have we gotten? A nonstop reminder how we'll all be dead soon. Not exactly the kind of DJ you want to book for your wedding. I think you're in the wrong playlist. You're in the funeral playlist here. Can we move over to the comfort and wisdom playlist? But if the message is, okay, well, everyone dies and I can't take it with me and there's nothing I can do to avoid it, then what's to stop a person from giving up and saying, well, who cares? Might as well eat, drink, and be merry. The reveal comes in the next set of verses where we find that while everyone will die, there is one way for a person to pass through death into life. Every other way, every other route, every other plan leads to death, keeping you hostage forever. But there is a way out. There is one way through where death becomes a tunnel rather than a tomb. Verse 14, like sheep, they are headed for Sheol. Death will shepherd them. The upright will rule over them in the morning and their form will waste away in Sheol far from their lofty abode. But God will redeem me from the power of Sheol for he will take me.
These days, people use the term sheep to deride their opponents. Oh, those sheep over there are doing this and that. The truth is the Bible has used this description for thousands of years, but not in a derogatory way, other than to highlight the fact that we are all pretty dumb as human beings. But the Bible uses this term not to demean us, but to describe us, to show us our state, to explain to us what's going on in the life of human beings. We are sheep. We're helpless, in need of a shepherd. We need protection. We need guidance. We need help. We need someone to care for us. But here's what's amazing about the way God has designed things in this universe. As sheep, we get to voluntarily side with one of two flocks under one of two shepherds. It's a binary choice, one or the other. There's no third option, no third way, but we get the choice. Now, there's the grim and cruel shepherd of death being depicted here in this psalm who devours his sheep without mercy. He exists only to consume them and destroy them. There's another option, God's redemption. Of course, the most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23, begins with those five powerful and wonderful words, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, when we are in his flock, we are saved from the power of death, snatched out of his clutches. And as the Lord was snatching us out, he breaks the teeth of death on the way so that death has no power over us, that we don't have to fear it. He has no claim on us anymore. And not only are we saved from death if the Lord is our shepherd, but then God promises to walk with us through life, showing us tender care and mercy every day, every day, every day loving us and helping us and sheltering us and being our refuge and our strength. And then at the end of our lives, he takes us to himself. He makes sure to bring us home so that we can be face to face forever with him in glory, looking right into the eyes of our shepherd, the lover of our souls who gave all so that we could be saved and live forever. What a choice. Sheep in the Bible's imagery are free-range animals. They're not in the tight pens that are sometimes shown in modern farming today. We have freedom to go this way or that in life, seeking one pasture or another. In our natural state, we're told that we are all sheep who have gone astray. That's a problem. None of us naturally say, I'll be godly, I'll follow the Lord, I will do what God wants. We've each turned our own way, leaving God's path to follow our own. In Psalm 119, the writer there recognizes this truth, and here's what he says. I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and find me. I love that. What a great sentiment. But you know, that's exactly what God has done. The psalmist doesn't say, I've wandered away, and so I'll climb the mountain and get to heaven on my own. He says, no, 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 I'm I'm in trouble. I'm lost. I'm stuck. God, come and find me. What has God done? He loved us before we loved him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did come and find us. He searches in all times, in all places for all his lost sheep, pleading with them to surrender and become a part of his flock. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, did all that was necessary to bring us into his fold, to pay our fine, to clear our debt, to redeem and rescue us from death. And if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Maybe you're thinking this morning, well, how do I leave the, the, the shepherd of death and have the shepherd of Jesus Christ? It's right there. Openly declare that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. When a person 
stops trusting in wealth or their own efforts and instead gives their life over to Jesus Christ, death is no longer a danger. It is a door through which we will enter eternity with our good shepherd. The dark of death needs not frighten us because salvation comes like the dawn. That's what the Bible says. The consequences of this choice before us could not be more clear or severe. 1 Samuel 2, he will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. Job 20, the terrors of death are upon the wicked. Their treasures will be thrown into deepest darkness. A wildfire will devour their goods, consuming all they have left. There is no other savior than Jesus Christ. God says this in Hosea chapter 13, you must acknowledge no God but me, for there is no other savior. Verse 16 in our text says, Do not be afraid when a person gets rich, when the wealth of his house increases. For when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down. Though he blesses himself during his lifetime, and you are acclaimed when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generation of his ancestors, but they will never see the light. Mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. A song turns to give us some comfort and guidance when it comes to the way that we think about life. While there are powerful people out there who are using their wealth for evil, we are not to be afraid of them. Rather, the Bible would have us pity them and pray for them because we know the end of their story. We know that their lives like ours are, is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. They may have a loud bark and have a big pile and sway around as much as they think they can here in this life, but like that it's going to be over and eternity is going to begin for them or for us, for this world. And these people who are being described in these verses are going to enter into a Christless eternity. What an unimaginable thing. To gain the whole world and to lose your soul. For what? So you could have prominence for a few years or a few decades so that you could be in an issue of Forbes magazine? We shouldn't fear them. We should pity them. How might this give us some day-to-day -day application? Well, here's one. If you scroll through social media, you won't go long before there's some sort of inflamed post about how Bill Gates is trying to kill us all. You've seen them, right? Anybody seen those out there? Bill Gates, he's coming to kill you and your family, right? Maybe that's just in my social media feed, but I'm guessing you have seen him too. You know what? Maybe he is. I don't know, and neither do you, and neither do the people writing these articles. But listen, the Bible says we don't have to be afraid of him or anyone else because we're being shepherded by the king of all heaven and earth. The Bible says, in God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's a verse that we need in times like this, when man is doing all sorts of things, saying all sorts of things, making all sorts of proclamations and threats and ideas and these sorts of things. We do not need to be afraid as God's people. As the psalm ends, it repeats what was already said in verse 12, but this time there's a small change, an important one. Mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. This is important. Because the problem is not with having assets. This isn't a psalm or a message about how everyone needs to go empty their bank account because it's wrong to have anything in there. That's not what the Bible is saying. The issue is not the content of your bank account. It's the condition of your heart. What are you hanging the weight of your life on? What are you trusting in? Where is your hope? And again, it's easy for us to think, okay, I'm a Christian and I'm not rich, so I'm good to go. 
I can kind of just bypass Psalm 49. But remember how this song began, specifically saying this is for everyone everywhere, rich people and poor people. If you're poor, this is a message that you need to hear. This is something we all need to pay attention to. Now listen, everything's relative. And I understand that there are lots of people in our community, maybe even in this room right now, that are facing real dire financial constraints and situations. And we're not making light of that, and God's not making light of that. God's not saying, who cares about that? God does care. He cares about the sparrows. How much more does he care about you? At the same time, you can run the numbers. If you make minimum wage in the United States full-time, then the numbers say that you are richer than 94% of the people in the world. And, and so it's all relative, right? And this is why this message is important. Because it's not just for some theoretical rich person. It's for everyone, rich and poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. If you're alive on planet Earth, the, Psalm 49 says this has something for you. Well, what is it for me? Well, think about it this way. In the book of Acts, you have this Christian couple. They were believers, Ananias and Sapphira. They were there in the midst of the most dynamic and amazing church congregation the, that history has ever known. Being taught by the apostles. They could go and talk to their pastor and say, what was Jesus like? And they could tell them, yeah, I lived with Jesus face to face for three and a half years. Let me tell you some stories that don't make it into the book. That's Ananias and Sapphira living in that situation. The, you know, the, the Pentecost church, the spirit church, all this stuff happening. And then they had this, they had this little thing. This little seed that started growing in their hearts. It had to do with money. It had to do with prominence. It had to do with, I want to keep some stuff in my pocket, but I also want people to think I'm pretty great. And they made a terrible mistake. They made a terrible decision. Let's lie to the Holy Spirit. Let's lie to the church. And because they were believers, the Lord gave them severe discipline and said, hey, we're, you're coming home. I'm taking you home to myself early. So, this isn't just some sort of abstract thing, and it's not just that, well, now that I'm redeemed, now that I'm a Christian, none of this applies to me. Because there is still a temptation for us to turn our eyes off of our shepherd and kind of look at other pastors and look at other, you know, supposed shepherds and say, maybe they can carry the weight of my life. This happened to Israel all the time in the Old Testament. They, they would slowly start trusting in chariots and horses slowly start trusting in, uh, you know, this political alliances. And the Lord kept saying to them, stop it, stop it, stop it. This is going to end in disaster for you. So because of what's been revealed, because that we know that we are only alive on this side of eternity for a very short amount of time, as redeemed people, we are to go and redeem the time that we do have. And that means walking in God's wisdom and making the most of every opportunity not just to make a buck, but to be about the Lord's business, proclaiming his message. It means learning to understand what the Lord wants you to do in your community and in your family and in your areas of influence. It means that we are to redeem the time by living a life full of the Holy Spirit. In doing these things, we not only avoid the futility of a life spent pursuing wealth, but we're told then, amazingly, as a bonus, we actually lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We can't take anything with us, but we can send things ahead as we go God's way. And as we say, Lord, we trust you. I'll go your way. I will honor you with my life. I will focus on you in my life. And the Lord says, guess what? You're going to give up some things in the temporal world, and I'm going to send great reward for you 
in the eternal world. We're not going to wake up in eternity and have to get a job. God will not only have built us a home, he will have furnished it for us and he's going to give us crowns as rewards and we can invest in those things today by serving the Lord and by redeeming the time and by going his way. Now perhaps we think to ourselves, well, I agree with God, he's my shepherd, I'll honor him, but can't I also sort of point the prow of my life toward building a fortune? Well, this psalm and so many other passages would caution you in as strong language as possible. Listen, God is not against people having assets, in some cases, very great assets. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have wonderful servants of God who are blessed materially and honored God with them. If you are wealthy, thank God for it and use what you have for his glory. Imitate the generosity of your lavishly generous God. But we know that the love of money is a deadly trap, not just for unbelievers, but for those within the church as well. And in the end, we can serve only one master. 2 Kings 17, I referenced earlier, also has this description. God says of these people, they feared the Lord, but they also worshiped their own gods according to the practices of the nations. And the results were and always are disaster because no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So all of us, rich or poor, are commanded by God to keep a proper perspective, to keep our eyes on the leading of our good shepherd, especially when we're worried about the condition of our pasture. A lot of us are looking ahead, seeing the news, are experiencing in our own lives a leanness. Things are going to have to tighten up because of this whole COVID thing that's going on. Well, you may be worried about the condition of your pasture, but we have no reason to fear because look at what the Lord has done for us. Look at what he has paid for us. Look at what he did to make us his own. We can trust him. We must trust him so that we can enjoy a life of real wealth, a life that lasts, a life on course for eternal peace, reward, and glory. Let's pray.